Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. If you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us this morning. Today is also a communion Sunday for us, and if you'd like to participate in communion at the end of the service, just have a piece of bread and a beverage ready, and you're more than welcome to take communion together with us. Today is also the second Sunday of Advent. Advent means arrival, and it's a season of the year in which we prepare ourselves for the arrival of Jesus Christ all over again at Christmas time. But we know that Christmas in 2020 is going to feel different, don't we? This is going to be a different kind of Christmas than we have experienced before. We're celebrating Christmas in the darkness of a pandemic in which many of us will be physically distanced from people that we would like to celebrate Christmas with. And that's even more painful because we typically have these warm, fuzzy feelings around Christmas time. We view Christmas as a, as a season of light and inspiration, kind of like a Hallmark card. And, and this year just stands in stark contrast to us. But the truth is, the first Christmas, uh, when Jesus was born, is actually a lot like 2020. It was not a silent night. All was not calm. All was not uh, bright. It was a a world that was dark and noisy and violent. Jesus was born into a world ruled by dictators, dictators like King Herod and and Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, and there was a fear of disease. There are so many healing stories in the New Testament because there was no medical science to speak of and people feared disease. And then it was also a time of increasing hatred and division in society because the Romans occupied Palestine, what is now Israel. There was a a reaction uh, within the members of society and those reactions were extreme and they were different. Everybody from, from people who wanted to overthrow the Romans with violence to people in the middle who were apathetic to people on the other end who were benefiting from the Roman occupation. And so there were extremes, there were political extremes in the time in which Jesus lived. So in context, the first Christmas looks a lot like this Christmas. And in the darkness of 2020, we need the light of Christmas perhaps more than we have in any other. And that's what we're exploring in this series, All Was Not Calm. And today we're welcoming a special guest speaker, Jezekiel Vitalzi. And Jezekiel used to lead worship here at the well when we first started the church. And then he and his wife, Annie, relocated to New York when she got this amazing opportunity uh, to be uh, in a fellowship at a college there. And he works in the college administration there. And Jezekiel is going to share a message with us today by video from Mark chapter one about John the Baptist, who prepared the way of the Lord as we prepare the way for Jesus here at Advent. And I want to give uh, Ezekiel a formal introduction. Ezekiel Vitalzi is a musician and college administrator based in Morrisville, New York. He received his bachelor's in theater and music from James Madison University and his master's in education from Regent University. He is also working towards degrees in religion with an emphasis in New Testament studies. Ezekiel has also served on staff at churches in Virginia, North Carolina, and most recently The Well in Chandler, Arizona. He's a proud husband to his wife, Annie, and a dog parent to a rambunctious corgi named Griswold. When he's not making music, studying the Bible, or advising college students, Ezekiel spends his time hiking with his wife and competing in amateur bodybuilding. So let's watch together Ezekiel Vitalzi. 
Good morning, church. Greetings from upstate New York. It's so good to be at the well this morning, even if it is, you know, virtually and during arguably the toughest year anyone's ever experienced, especially myself. I uh, hope you all are doing okay. Uh, please know that I think about you all so much and I'm praying for each and every one of you. And my prayer is that during this time, you know, that's been marred with so many difficulties, so many tragedies with COVID, our nation's unrest, and so many other things that make this time just feel like hell, um, is that we are all still somehow finding our light. I hope that you're able to use this time to take a little bit of a pause to really meditate on God's purpose in our life, and perhaps even try to cultivate a mindset in which we can feel joyful and content no matter what season of life we're in. I know that that's easier said than done, but I think for this particular endeavor, trying is more important than actually doing. <laughs> well, hey, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jezekiel Batalzi, and I'm proud to say that I'm an original member of The Well. Uh, I was lucky enough to be the worship leader there um, until my wife and I moved away to upstate New York back in July of 2019. I remember being in you know, some of those first launch meetings, those planning meetings. I remember loading, you know, a giant truck of, of, of materials into a, you know, a cafeteria in Chandler, Arizona, hoping that people would show up. And it's, 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 it's just a place that I, I will continue to call home for the rest of my life um, because I was a part of it from the very beginning. Um, and despite being 3,000 miles away, please know that we still hold this church so close in our heart. We're so thrilled to see that it still exists, especially as, you know, church has really changed for everyone in America this past year. And uh, I want you to know that I, I think that thoughtful, inclusive, progressive-minded churches like The Well, they're rare. You know, and I've been part of so many of them that have, you know, closed their doors or have struggled to stay open. And I, and I hope that we can do whatever it takes to make sure that churches like The Well continue to provide a home for the spiritually homeless. I remember when I first moved to Arizona and I was looking for a church that really tried to fit my values and there just weren't that many. Um, but places like One Church, uh, a church that Ryan Gear started back in the day, gave me a home. And then when I met Ryan, you know, we created a home for people and I hope that we can continue to create a home for people. You know, so aside from being a worship leader and OG member of the well, my actual profession, my current profession, is as serving as a college administrator where I get to advise and mentor college students. Um, I'm doing that right now here at SUNY Morrisville in Morrisville, New York, while my wife finishes up a fellowship at Colgate University, which is just 14 minutes down the road. And, you know, during this, uh, this time, you know, of, of working, uh, I, I've been able to do a lot of really, really interesting things because one of the perks of being a college administrator is that you get to take free college classes. All the college classes that you want are free. It's really, really cool. And you know, most people they use it to get like some kind of PhD or certificate in something that's like related to furthering their career. That's not what I used it for. I am the kind of person who's always been um, about using their education to just pursue things that were on their heart. So I, over the course of the years, I've taken a lot of classes in like marriage and relationship science. I've taken classes in physical education or exercise science because I'm an aspiring bodybuilder at the moment. Um, but mostly the bulk of my education has been um, religious studies, specifically scholarly religious studies for the New Testament. 
um, because I just am in love with the Bible. You know, I, I have been for, 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 for as long as I can remember, but these past, I'd say five years, I really feel like I have truly, truly fallen in love with the Bible because, you know, the skill of viewing the Bible, not just as a devout believer, but as an objective historian, as someone that really understands the cultural significance of the text, someone that understands the history that surrounds the text and that is incorporated and living in the text. Oh, man, it is like reading the Bible in 3D. It is like you are unlocking some of the secret, secret mysteries of the spiritual text. And um, honestly, you know, just studying it at an academic and scholarly level has helped me to have a deeper, healthier connection with the text. And I've been lucky enough to take classes with some of the nation's best New Testament scholars, which has helped me to really grow in my faith, despite so many, and I mean so many different levels of faith deconstruction. You know, I feel like uh, as much as I've loved the Bible for most of my life, most of the life I was reading the Bible wrong. And most of my life I was, you know, kind of uh, being a little bit too legalistic with it, perhaps being, uh, using it in a way that it just wasn't meant to be used. And I, and I think that that's something that a lot of us, you know, as we're growing in our faith journey are, are struggling with and really trying to, trying to, um, to overcome. It's funny, when I told all this to Ryan years ago, and I told him about, you know, what I was learning and how my, my passion for scripture was really growing, he asked me, oh, well, you know, I know you're a worship leader, but would you ever want to preach one day? Is that something you'd ever want to do? To which I was like, no, not really. <laughs> you know, because uh, as someone who's a pastor's kid, you know, my father was a pastor and I grew up in the church. Uh, it was It was hard. I'm sure there's a few pastors, uh, kids watching right now, and you knew that it was hard. You know, you spent a lot of time at church, probably too much time at church. You know, you saw some of the best parts of people, and you also saw some of the worst parts of people. You saw some of the best parts of, of being at church and working within a church, and you also saw the behind-the-scenes stuff, some things that you probably should have never saw. And I just, I, I never wanted to go through that. I never wanted to be, to give my life to something like that. It just felt like something that I would suffer through. It felt like something that would be too hard for me. But after a lot of growing up and soul searching, I learned to make meaning of all of that. I learned to make meaning of, of, of suffering just in general. And I realized that my love for the word is undeniable. My love for preaching about the, the, the beautiful truths in the Bible, it gives me unspeakable joy. So that is why I'm here to give you all a sermon today, a sermon that I'm unqualified to give, but I'm going to do my best anyways. Feel free to tell my parents that their, par that their prayers have been answered, but just, you know, make sure they don't get too cocky about it, okay? <laughs> also, before we get into today's word, I, you know, I, it would be a missed opportunity for me to not just say a few nice words and thanks to, uh, to everyone who got me to this point, you know, because this is like, honestly, like 32 years in the making. So I, I first obviously like to thank my dad. Hey, if you're watching, dad, I love you. Thank you uh, for being my pastor for the first 18 years of life. And for always wanting me to be one, we'll see. This is just the first one, so relax. I'd also like to thank all of the thoughtful people in my life who helped me shape my religious beliefs and who provided me with a spiritual home. And, you know, while that does include famous scholars that I've worked with uh, over the years, um, Peter Enns, Bart Ehrman, Jared Bias, you know, people who I've definitely learned a lot from. I'm, I'm mostly, mostly talking about 
the people on the front lines, the people like Ryan Gear at the well, the people like Aaron Stritzel and Angie Von Slaughter from One Church, um, and all the progressive and thoughtful church leaders who just invested in me over over the, over the course of these past you know years and uh, and have given so much of their own lives to the thankless work of ministry. I, I just I, I'm in forever debt to to all of you, and I and I admire you all so much. I'd also like to thank my wife, obviously, because she's the greatest. <laughs> she's probably not watching, but she, you know, she's the greatest. And she is uh, honestly just the, the best life partner, a poor sh schmuck like me could have ever asked for. And uh, has always been my, my rock and my support through some of the wildest chapters of our life, especially the one we're currently in. Um, but of course, I have to give my utmost thanks to God for always loving me uh, like the prodigal son that I am and for always making me feel at home with the Bible, at home with my faith, at home with you all. Anyway, enough about me. Let's dig in. Let's dig into today's topics. We are in the second Sunday of our Advent series called All Was Not Calm. And as Pastor Ryan explained last week, Advent needs arrival. It's a season of waiting and preparing for the arrival of Jesus Christ at Christmas. And this week, we're exploring a really interesting passage in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which is in line with the Advent Lectionary series that's occurring worldwide. So basically, churches all over the world are reading this exact same passage. But before we get into the text, I have a lot of things to say about the Gospel of Mark that I just think are really, really interesting and really, really important to know before we get into it. Um, first of all, you know, on a personal note, as, as I, the more I understand the New Testament and the more I understand, you know, kind of the, all that was surrounding its creation, Mark has become one of my, my favorite book, really, of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's a book that I think really masterfully captures the essence of suffering and makes the profound case that one's path to their greatest life is through suffering, which I, I find very poignant in 2020, especially. Something else is that people also forget that Mark is the first gospel ever. You know, it is the first piece of religious writing for the Christian community. You know, a lot of people think it's Matthew because it was the first one in, you know, it, you know when you got your, your, your starter Bible back in the day. But I, it, I, it doesn't make sense. I don't know why Matthew's the first. Maybe just people liked it more. I don't know. But Mark was the first. And a lot of people say that uh, Matthew and Luke were actually inspired by Mark and a Q source. And basically, as these authors were writing Matthew and Luke, they took Mark, they took a Q source, they took all the oral traditions of Christianity throughout time, and that's how they were able to make those particular Gospels. Some more history that I think is, is just really, really pertinent is that at the time Mark is distributed, Jewish people and Jerusalem are in revolt. It's 70 AD, and the early Christians are definitely, you know, in, in, in serious tension with their Roman oppressors. And as early Christians and the Jewish community are, are, are getting the Gospel of Mark, they're, they're reading it, and they're understanding its message to be sort of like a rallying cry to rebuke the oppressive Roman forces of the time which I, I just find like utterly fascinating. And if you want to do a really great deep dive into uh, this particular topic, um, if you listen to the Bible for Normal People podcast with Peter Enns and Jared Bias, which I highly recommend all people listen to, there's a really good episode, episode 69, that talks about you know how to read Mark and the significance of the Gospel of Mark. 
something else, uh, and I don't want to kill you with too much exposition, but something else that I find really, really thrilling about Mark is that scholars believe that it was written by a layman, a.k.a. someone who is trained or skilled in the art of writing religious texts, and, and it, it shows. It doesn't really follow a lot of the same structural traits or uh, as previous religious texts. Uh, it, apparently, it's like really clumsily written, you know, has like grammatical issues, and, and the language just seems very unpolished in comparison to like, you know, other Greek religious texts. So one could say that it was written, you know, kind of in the style of oral, for oral presentation, or, you know, it was it perhaps even, you know, written as like a, something to be used for dramatic presentation, which I guess would make sense because a lot of, you know, the spreading of the Christian message back then was oral tradition. Um, and again, you know, I, I imagine that this person just out of necessity needed to write something that was going to help spread the Christian message. And that's what this is. And I just love that. I love knowing that Mark was written by a layman because it inspires me personally to think that, you know, I too could do something great. I'm not special. I'm not so smart. I'm not somebody who could write, you know, a gospel that will be read for really the end of time. Um, and neither was Mark, or neither was the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And, and I think that there's a lesson there, and there's a, there's a whole sermon and just in that, in that one point, because how often do we feel like God is calling us to do things that we're not qualified to do? But time and time again, you know, we see throughout history, God is always using unlikely people. He's using people like Moses, who had a stammering problem, was supposed to, with his voice, lead people out of Egypt, lead people out of slavery. You know, he used the Apostle Paul, who was once a Christian hunter, like he hunted Christians and murdered them. And this guy would essentially start churches all over the world. And, you know, I, I just think that, that, that there, there's, there's a lot there and uh, to, to, to meditate on spiritually. You know, sometimes God calls us to do things that we never thought we would do. And maybe like, you know, even giving a sermon. How about that? So let's dive in. Let's dive into this text. Uh, you know, I think something else, and I, again, don't want to kill you with too much, is that when we first read this, you'll kind of ask yourself, Jezekiel, why are we reading this? This doesn't seem like a Christmas story. This doesn't seem like an Advent story. You know, there is no birth narrative of Jesus. Uh, there is no genealogies connecting Jesus to like, you know, important historical Jews. There's not even really any mention of like, you know, the Christmas story, you know, of like the Mary, Joseph, the shepherds. There's nothing like that. And, and again, this is the very, very first text. Um, uh, so, so really like this, the concept of the Christmas story and, you know, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the three wise men that come to see them, that doesn't come till much, much later. So, why, so again, why are we reading this for Advent? And why are churches all over the world reading this for Advent right now? And that's a good question. It is. It's a good question for us to explore. And I think when the text fully reveals itself to us, we'll realize that this passage is actually the perfect set of verses for Advent. You know, it nicely fits in with the idea that all was not calm back then. And most importantly, it'll really give us plenty of lessons that translate to our current state of things and translate to the idea of preparation. So let's just dive in. Again, the chapter is chapter one of Mark, verses one through eight. And this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, just as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So just to recap, you know, to kind of, for, for those of you who spaced out during that, um, right off the bat, the Gospel of Mark begins by telling the reader exactly who Jesus is and what this is going to be about. Okay, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The author even goes as far as to say that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So, also, we're introduced to the character of John the Baptist, but only vaguely, really, it seems, you know, which seems kind of strange, but it isn't. And I'll tell you why. We as contemporary readers, or, you know, maybe, you know, imagine reading this for the first time when you were, you know, just growing up in church, or, and, or, or reading this at the time where, you know, maybe you're, you're new to Christianity and you're just kind of, you know, putzing through the New Testament, you're reading through this stuff, um, and, you, and all of a sudden you meet John the Baptist. You don't really know who John the Baptist is. And so, like, the text doesn't really resonate with you in a way that it would maybe back in 70 AD. Because back then, people knew who John the Baptist was. Um, you know, and, and, and this gospel is definitely aimed at them. It's written for these folks. And they know John the Baptist very, very well. And it is very significant that he is mentioned at the beginning of the gospel. And again, like I said earlier, this is the first Christian text they are reading, okay? So before we get into the actual layers of the text and the significance there, we have to understand who John the Baptist is. But more specifically, or more accurately, we have to understand how the Jewish community and the early Christians in 70 AD perceived him to be. So here's some fun, fast facts about John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist is viewed as the greatest prophet of all time. And just such a bold truth teller. A lot of people thought that he was the second coming of Elijah, which is a big deal. He was famously imprisoned um, for calling out Herod Antipas on his illegal marriage with, the, with Herodias, who was the wife of his own brother, who was also his niece, by the way. Weird, right? And even after his jailing, authorities were afraid to execute him because he was so popular during that time. So imagine that. I know that he would eventually end up being executed, but for a while they were afraid to do it because they were worried about revolt. Additionally, you know, something else is that during the early days of the Jesus movement and early Christianity, John the Baptist is actually more prolific and influential than Jesus himself because he had made a name for himself for rebuking the oppressive powers of the time, you know, empowering oppressed Jewish people. And for just being a wild man, a wild man who was yelling truth in the desert, okay? And, 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 and that had a lot to do with his specific identity. You know, something that we should know about John the Baptist is that he was more than likely an Essene. And Essene, by the way, in case you're not familiar with that, uh, there, there are different sects of Judaism. You know, I'm sure you've heard of the Pharisees. You might have even heard of the Sadducees. One other sect of, of uh, Judaism is... Um, the Essenes, basically. Um, and 
a big trait of the Essene community was their ascetic ways. Basically, um, asceticism is the practice of denying yourself of any indulgence whatsoever. You lead a simple life, you lead a monk life, you are just someone that is there to, to, to live, you know, not necessarily in utter poverty, but basically in utter poverty and in utter simplicity. And that's why, you know, we see a lot of the descriptions of John the Baptist wearing camel hair, clothing, and eating honeyed locusts, because that, that, is, that is a trait of something that he would do. And something else that we should know is that, again, he was a bold truth teller. He was someone that wasn't afraid to just speak from his heart, speak the truth that he knew was ordained by God. And he was doing it as a crazy person, wearing camel hair clothing in the desert, just yelling this stuff, and people from all over would come to see it. And they would probably come to see it maybe as like a spectacle, maybe as like, well, let's go see this crazy guy go and tell us a story in the desert. But when people came, he became lore. And he became lore because of the fact that when they heard him speak, they felt the truth. He was a bold truth teller. And, and, and word spread and people from all over would come into the desert to come and see him speak and to speak truth into their lives. And they were baptized by him. And they were baptized by him, and, they, and, and again, it prepared their hearts for what was to come. So just to summarize, you know, John the Baptist, this man, he suffered his whole life. You know, he boldly spoke the truth, regardless of the consequences or if anyone was listening, and he prepared the way for Jesus Christ. And when all was said and done, he was, he was executed. But, but, he lived on in the hearts and minds of his followers forever. And he would pave the way for Jesus and all of the work that he did. You know, Jesus, like, he almost, like, passed the baton to Jesus, and Jesus took it further. And even Jesus himself said that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever to be born from a woman. Wow. So with that being said, now that you know who John is, let's get back to this. Because I think that now we're going to really start to see the three-dimensional nature of this text and why this text is particularly important for Advent. As I stated before, Advent is a season of preparing for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And this passage speaks exactly to that. You know, the first half of the passage expresses a message of how we should prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And even better, we're presented with John the Baptist, who serves as the ultimate model for preparing the way for God and for good. Okay, so one would argue that Jesus' ministry may not have even been successful without the work of John the Baptist. You know, think about that. That is so important. There's a reason why Jesus said that John the Baptist is the greatest human of all time. He literally prepared the way. His efforts were so profound that it helped Jesus, the Son of God, to be successful here on earth. And what's also just really interesting and, and, and something I think about a lot, I'll bet that John the Baptist didn't even really know or fully realize that his efforts would lead to all that. He simply just had faith and he did the work that he was called to do. Even through the suffering, even when he was alone in the desert, even while he was imprisoned, he gave his life to do the Lord's work. And he prepared the way for God and for good. That is a true Advent story. And in 2020, 
you know, these lessons still give us a lot to think about as we're in our own season of preparation, especially as we're suffering, especially as we're isolated during a time of COVID and as we're engaged in a pretty intense culture war with our neighbor. When I read the story and I think about preparation and preparing myself and preparing the way for the Lord, I ask myself, how can we as a church prepare the way for God and for good? Especially as we fight through this COVID crisis and as we transition to new government leadership in 2021. How do we prepare the way for healing in this nation? How can we prepare our hearts and minds for all that is to come as we mend fences with our neighbor? How do we make meaning of our own pain and suffering during this time? And how can we, like Jesus and John the Baptist, find our own greatness through the trials and tribulations of our experience? How can we be a bold truth teller like John the Baptist while also sharing and expressing the love of Jesus Christ? Boldly telling the truth, it often feels... Like, we are just one voice crying out in the wilderness, doesn't it? You know, I'm sure there's been so many of us that have just tried and tried, and and it felt like it went nowhere. It felt lonely. It feels like our efforts don't matter. A lot of the times, it it also may feel like we, we will never see where our efforts really go, and we will die before we see the fruits of our labor. But that's okay. Because... I believe when all is said and done, somehow our love and our actions will reverberate throughout generations, even if it's unlikely. But it was unlikely that John the Baptist would have an influence that succeeded the way that it did. It was unlikely that the author of Mark would create a scripture, even though it's objectively not that great of a scripture, you know, in in a functional sense. And yet we celebrate and we read it thousands of years later. And even if somehow, you know, John the Baptist wasn't successful, the author of Mark, they weren't successful. They did what they were called to do. And their work prepared the way for God and for good. I know for myself, um, there's just been so many times in my life where I've just felt like I was working for nothing. I felt like I was... I was toiling away, doing what I thought was the right thing, doing what I thought was a good thing. And then, you know, some way through it, you're just like, why am I doing this? Why does it feel like I am, I'm busting my butt for, for just, for, for such little payoff? Um, I, I, I see it a lot in my work as an educator. You know, I often think that, you know, my students don't care. They don't they don't like, you know, they don't see the efforts that I'm doing. They don't care that I'm providing them with this, these resources. They don't care that I'm doing this. They don't care that I'm doing that. You know, what is this all for? I've felt this way a lot as someone who's been on staff at a church. You know, why are we loading in this heavy equipment in a sweaty cafeteria on a hundred degree Arizona day to put on a church service? What is, why? What is this all for? Couldn't we all just go to brunch? Like, couldn't we just have a Saturday or a Sunday that is just not filled with all this planning and preparing and stress? You know, what is this all for? 
why are we struggling so much when it feels like we're doing so little? I imagine healthcare workers think the same thing during this time. You know, why, why am I doing the work of, of, of helping these people, telling them to wear our masks, telling them to, to do all these things, when it just feels like it's such a small drop in the bucket? Social justice advocates, they probably think the same thing. You know, why am I fighting the work of, of white supremacy? Why, why, why am I, you know, trying to make sure that marginalized people get a fair shake in this country? It just seems like such a drop in the bucket. But, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to being a bold truth teller and living in our truth. It comes down to honoring our calling. It can't just be about the outcome. It can't just be about, you know, the, the fruits of our labor that we could see. It can't just be about that. It has to just be about the work itself. It has to just be about, you know, we are doing what God wants us to do. And no one, and I mean no one, has ever wasted their life living in their truth, living in God's calling, and really just being a bold truth teller. It doesn't matter how poor it made them. It doesn't matter how much they suffered through it. And it doesn't matter that they couldn't see what they were working towards. They, these people, the people that do this, they are preparing the way for God and for good. Imagine if John the Baptist gave in his surrender to his oppressors. Imagine if the author of Mark thought, you know, I'm not qualified to write this gospel. I can't do this. Imagine if Galileo complied with the orders of the Catholic Church. Imagine if we lived in a world where civil rights martyrs of the early, of the early 20th century, you know, just thought, you know what, fighting the work of white supremacy, it seems too dangerous. It seems like I'm going to struggle and suffer a lot in this. Maybe, maybe I should do something else. And, and again, none of these people that I mentioned, they, none of them saw the fruits of their labor, but still they persisted. And if they hadn't, where would we be? I'm glad they persisted. I'm glad because when all was said and done, they prepared a way for God and for good. I'll close this sermon with a Bible verse that I hope to be engraved on my tombstone one day. It's uh, 2 Timothy 4.7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As we persist through this tumultuous season, I pray that we all use this time to really identify what our good fight is and prepare for it. And when you find it, I pray that you see it through, even when it feels like it's for nothing, even when it feels like suffering is too much, because if it is your calling, you will be able to make meaning of it all and find your greatest life, so long as you keep the faith. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, despite living through one of the hardest years we've ever faced, we know that you are with us. We know that it's not all for nothing, and we know that the suffering that we face now will prepare us for the next season of life. And we know that that's an important season. May we all use this time to make meaning of it all and that you meet us where we are. Help us to know your will so that we can prepare the way. And may it be a labor of love that reverberates throughout generations. I pray all of this in your name. Amen. I appreciate what Ezekiel had to share with us today. Even if you feel like you're a voice crying out in the wilderness, 
and you're trying to speak for, for God and for goodness in this world and kindness and compassion and empathy and you feel alone, you are not alone. And as we take communion together today, we, we see community in that word communion. We're taking it together. And so I invite you to, to grab a piece of bread and have a beverage ready. And wherever you are, you can participate in this community together, symbolized by communion uh, with, with each other and with God. So let's take communion together now. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus shared a meal with his disciples. And he picked up the bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. And now let's consume your piece of the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup. He thanked God for it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for the message of John the Baptist and the example of John the Baptist. Somebody who lived in a desert community in Qumran near the Dead Sea. And people came from miles away down a 3,000 feet rocky slope down the side of a mountain to hear this man preach and to be immersed by him as a ritual of newness, that we need to invite God to do a new thing in our society. And we need uh, compassion and kindness and empathy and to rededicate ourselves to goodness and truth and doing what is right by everybody. John the Baptist could not be more relevant than he is in 2020. Many of us feel alone like we're a voice crying out in the middle of the desert, (laughs) trying to influence other people to do what's right and to listen to to facts and and to be truthful and to listen to science and and to do what's right by everybody, to work for justice in this world. And that is the definition, definition of justice, to do what's right by everybody. And sometimes we feel alone, but we are not alone. And just like John, we don't know the full um, consequences Uh, all of the the good things that are going to happen because of our efforts. We're not able to see all of that in this lifetime. But God, we trust that like John, you will speak through us and use us and inspire us if we don't stop proclaiming, if we don't stop crying out and preparing a way for the Lord, for God and for goodness in this world. And we thank you that we're privileged to share your message and to do that with other like-minded people. Uh, like those in the well and in communities like ours around the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.